let's go ahead and pray and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for bringing us through another week to come here to worship you, to fellowship with one another, but most of all, to lift up your name on high. Pray that you'll be with us through this class. Father, reveal to us who your servant is and how that should impact our lives. In Yeshua's name, amen. So how many of you have heard the phrase, Servant Songs of Isaiah? The Servant Songs of Isaiah. Okay. So, if you haven't heard it, then I'm sure you don't know what those are. So, for, um, the servant in these passages, there are four passages in Isaiah. We're going to look at those. And there's a servant that's identified in them. We're going to look at whether that servant is an individual, and if so, who it is. Is it Isaiah? Is it the Messiah? Is it someone else? And if so, who? Or is it the nation of Israel? which a lot of the Jewish people believe. That's our discussion for today and next week. And we're going to be looking for clues as we go through these four servant songs so that we can identify who this individual or nation is. And I have pulled together some information from several sources. The primary sources are a book called The Lion of Judah, How Jesus Completes Biblical Judaism and Why Judaism and Christianity Separated. That's by Rabbi Kurt A. Schneider that some of you may recognize from television. Isaiah 53, explained by Mitch Glazer. Also, a book called The Rabbi, The Secret Message, and the Identity of Messiah by Carl Gallups, who I think Rabbi Scott even interviewed at one point when he had his radio program. And there's also some additional websites and uh, books that, and things that I'll mention as we go through the class. But those are my primary sources right there. Many people believe that the servant that's referred to in these songs is the Messiah. And in fact, the Tanakh itself is filled with prophecies of the coming Messiah. Those of you who have taken our afternoon classes here at Congregation Beth Adonai, especially the Torah Club series, know that Messiah is foreshadowed throughout the Torah. And it's not just the Torah, it's throughout the entire Tanakh. And what I want to do now is I want to look at a few of these, and we're going to hit them really quickly because we got started a little late. Um, there's a website at the top there. If you want to look at all of the prophecies of the Messiah and their fulfillment, you can go to that website. But a few of them, if you'll look at Isaiah... 9, verses 6 and 7, tells us that the Messiah would be God. And we actually see that stated in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, where it talks about all this happened in order to fulfill what Adonai had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Psalm, verses 2, 1 through 12, it tells us that the Messiah would be called God's son. And we see that in 1 John 5.20, where it tells us that, and we know that the Son, the Son of God has come and has given us discernment so that we may know who is genuine. Moreover, we are united with the one who is genuine, united with his Son, Yeshua, the Messiah. He is the genuine God and eternal life. Isaiah 7.14 tells us the Messiah would be born of a virgin, we see that in Matthew 1, 22 and 23 that we just looked at. And I need to keep this going here. Must not. Okay, 
If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> Here we go. Micah 5.2 tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 tells us the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and it goes on and on. The Messiah would be a descendant of David in Ezekiel 34. He would be from the tribe of Judah, and I'll just let you look at that list for the sake of time rather than go through all of them. But as you can see, there are a lot of... One, the, we'll look at this last one, and then we'll move on. Zechariah 9, 9. This is an interesting one. It says, the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Hmm. Matthew 21, verses 6 through 11, tells us that's exactly what happened. So, I'm going to skip through all these other ones, so bear with me. And regardless of where you stand on the Messiahship of Yeshua, it's clear that the Tanakh absolutely foretells of a Messiah that would come. And it tells of the Messiah's birth, it tells of the Messiah's death, and even tells of the Messiah's resurrection, as we'll talk about more next week. They're all told within the pages of the Tanakh long before the Brit Hadashah was written. If you study prophecy, you'll also see that there are two different descriptions of the Messiah. We see the suffering Messiah, Messiah ben Joseph. Then we see the conquering and victorious Messiah, who is Messiah ben David. The ancient teachers recognized these two distinct descriptions. And some of them even believed that it meant that there would be two separate messiahs. And I want to show you how, from our vantage point today, we can see that these prophecies were not describing two different people, but they were describing the same person coming at two different points in history for two different purposes. The first appearance would be as that suffering servant that's described in these servant songs that we'll be looking at. Most notably, Isaiah 53, with his second coming being as the conquering and victorious king. As I stated a few moments ago, as Messianic believers, we recognize the Messiah as being Yeshua, who has already made his first appearance, and we're waiting for that second appearance, when he will come as the king of the Jews, just as the sign over his head said when he was crucified. And if you have any doubts about that, I want you to consider his name. Yeshua, and its more ancient form, which is Yehoshua, which is a very distinctive Hebrew word that translates into English as salvation, and we'll be talking more about that later. We see Yeshua used more than seven dozen times, beginning in the book of Exodus and continuing through the book of Zechariah. That means it appears more than a total of 84 times. Yes, his name does appear that many times in the Hebrew scriptures. And that may come as a surprise to many of you who are English speakers, because when we read our English Bibles, we see the name or the word salvation instead of Yeshua, so we don't put two and two together and equate it with the, the person of Yeshua. But when we read it in Hebrew, we get a different viewpoint, because we get the word Yeshua. So that means that when the Jewish people are reading their Bibles or their scriptures, their Tanakh, they're confronted with the salvation of Yeshua throughout the Tanakh. And I want to give you just a couple of examples. Exodus 15.2 tells us the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That's how we know it in English. In Hebrew, it says he has become my Yeshua. 
Then it goes on, it says, this is my God. I will glorify him, my Father's God. I will exalt him. And in Psalm 27, 1 is another example. It says, Adonai is my light and salvation. He's my Yeshua. Whom do I need to fear? Adonai is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? And here's a good one. Psalm 61, verses 1 and 2. My soul waits in silence for God alone. My salvation, my Yeshua, comes from him. He alone is my rock and salvation. He's my Yeshua. My stronghold, I won't be greatly moved. We see Yeshua twice in that passage. In fact, in the Psalms alone, there are more than three dozen similar passages. That's more than 36. But it doesn't stop there. I'll give you a few more quick examples from other places in the Tanakh. It's a passage in Isaiah, chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. We see Yeshua three times. It says, see, God is my salvation. He's my Yeshua. I am confident and unafraid, for the Lord Adonai is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation, my Yeshua. Then you will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation, from the springs of Yeshua. Here's one, Jonah. Do you expect to see Yeshua's name in the book of Jonah? Jonah 2.9, but I, speaking my thanks aloud, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will pay salvation, Yeshua comes from Adonai. And here's one in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, a righteous one bringing salvation, bringing Yeshua. He is lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But the use of Yeshua in Jewish writings isn't limited to the scriptures alone. This is important. We even see the word Yeshua in the 15th benediction of the Amidah, the central prayer of the Jewish liturgy that is said three times daily. That portion of that prayer reads, speedily cause the offspring of your servant David to flourish and let him be exalted by your saving power. For we wait all day long for your Yeshua, for your salvation. Blessed are you, O Lord, who causes Yeshua, salvation, to flourish. So it's right there in the Amidah. And there are many other examples, but we're going to stop it there. As you can see, not only is Yeshua's name throughout the Tanakh and even directly connected directly with the Messianic prophecies, it's also clearly in Jewish liturgy. So for purposes of our study today and next week, we're going to limit our focus to those specific prophecies that are in the four passages called the Servant Songs of Isaiah. And that includes, as I said earlier, Isaiah 53, which is without a doubt the most controversial passage to the Jewish people. That Isaiah 53 would be controversial may come as a surprise to those of us who are Gentiles and were raised in the Christian church because we read Isaiah 53 and what does it tell us? Oh, that's Yeshua. We have, I mean, immediately, as soon as we read it. However, when many practicing Jews read it, they believe it is referring to the nation of Israel rather than an individual person because of what they have been taught. So in their perspective, it cannot be referring to Yeshua. So who's right? Stay tuned this morning and again next week to find the answer. And I will mention this. When people go out on the streets in Israel and talk to the Jewish people, and they have them read Isaiah 53 without telling them it's a part of their Bible, their Tanakh, they read it and say, oh, that's talking about Jesus. 
That's their response immediately when they, it's taken out of its context of being a part of their scriptures. They see it too when you pull those blinders off. But when they believe it's there to not know that's the nation of Israel. Before we go any further, we need to define the word servant because that's key to this whole study. Biblical scholars use this word to refer to an agent of God that has been sent into the world to do God's will. So as we look at these passages today and again next week, we should constantly be asking ourselves, who is this servant? Is it Isaiah? Is it the Messiah? Is it someone else? Or is it the nation of Israel, as the Jews proclaim? And I'll be honest with you, that's kind of a difficult question. It's kind of a loaded question in a way, because as Mitch Glazer points out in his book, Isaiah 53 Explained, some of the verses in these passages do appear on their surface to appear to the nation of Israel. But many, and mo in fact, most of them refer to an individual, and we'll talk about that more as we look at the passages. And in order to unravel this mystery, there's another Hebrew word we need to look at because it's used almost 800 times throughout the Tanakh. That word is eved, E-V-E-D, and it's translated into English as either slave or servant. Eved appears 31 times in Isaiah chapters 40 through 53, and those chapters encompass all four of these servant songs. So 31 times we have that word eved. And it's important to note that the word Yvette is often linked with the word Lord, Adonai, God. For example, if you look at significant individuals in the Tanakh, you will see the title, Servant of the Lord, okay? Used in connection with Moses 17 times. Okay. Joshua, she used twice. King David, we see it twice. We also see it used when speaking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even when referring to the prophets. Glazer adds some context in his book, and I want to quote directly. The Eved Adonai, the servant of the Lord, is an individual who carries out the will of God and is totally subservient to his divine master. The background for this idea is worth taking a moment to understand. According to the Torah, an Israelite who fell into debt or lost his land could indenture himself as a servant to a fellow Israelite. However, after six years, he would be released and could buy back his land if possible. Some Israelites actually chose not to leave their service, but to further indenture themselves to their master. A special earring was placed in the ear of the servants to indicate that they now serve their master voluntarily. Usually they did this out of gratitude because they were treated so well during those six years of being indentured to their master. And Glazer continues, he says, this helps frame our understanding of the word servant. The image is one of individuals who willingly serve their master out of love, gratitude, and even out of a sense of debt. They have forsaken their own dreams and vision for their lives and submitted themselves to the will of a benevolent master. As I said, this concept is extremely important to our discussion. We need to understand what a servant is in this context, and that's your description. This servant is totally obedient to his master, even to the point of sacrificing his life if the master so desires. So now let's go ahead and get into these songs. The first one is found in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. 
and it tells of the call of the servant to bring justice to the nations. I admit this is the wrong one. Come on. Okay, here we go. Here is my servant whom I support, my chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the Goyim, the nations. He will not cry or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not snap off a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. He will bring forth justice according to truth. He will not weaken or be crushed until he has established justice on the earth. And the coastlands wait for his Torah. Thus says God, Adonai, who created the heavens and spread them out, who stretched out the earth and all that grows from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, Adonai, called you righteously. I took hold of you by the hand. I shaped you and made you a covenant for the people to be a light for the goyim so that you can open blind eyes, free the prisoners from confinement, those living in darkness from the dungeon. I am Adonai, that is my name. I yield my glory to no one else, nor my praise to any idol. See how the former predictions come true, and now new things do I declare. Before they sprout, I tell you about them. In order to understand this song, we need a short history lesson. Adonai delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt, as we're getting into right now in our weekly Torah readings. And he made a covenant with them. And he led them through the desert wilderness and into the land of Canaan. He made a nation of them, and during the reign of King Solomon, they built a temple for Adonai. God gave them victory over their enemies. When they would stray, the prophets would call them back to repentance. But then, in the 6th century BC, the Babylonians defeated Israel, destroyed the temple, and took the people into bondage. The people must have felt that Adonai had abandoned them to their enemies. How could he have let this happen? Were they still his chosen people? They could only conclude that God had withdrawn his favor and allowed the Babylonians to punish them for their sins and disobedience. It is into this crisis that Isaiah speaks to the people, reminding them who Adonai is and how he works. Adonai points them away from the devastation at hand and reminds them of his larger plans, his plan of sending a servant. And we see, if we go back to verse 3, let me see if I can get that one up here. I think it's the next one. It's hard to read it up here. It's kind of small on the screen. Okay, that verse 3. He will not snap off a broken reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. That clarifies that this servant will not be a conqueror or a tyrant. Then we see in verse 4 that he will establish justice on the earth and that the coastlands wait for his Torah. Then going back to verse 5, we see that God is not just a God of Israel or even of Babylon. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Put another way, he made all things and he gave breath to the people on the earth. Then we see in verse 6, God's purpose for the nation of Israel was to be a light to the nations, 
to open the eyes of the blind and to free the prisoners. They, they, the Israelites, were to be righteous, not just for themselves, but also for the nations. Okay? The, how much more so than this servant? God has not abandoned these people, but he is instead working to restore them according to his plan. And restoration can sometimes, as we all know, be very painful. And from that nation of Israel would come a servant, one that would indeed do these very things. Then we go on to verse 8. And we see there that now we have Adonai speaking. He identifies himself. He says, I am Adonai. That is my name. And he reminds the people in verse 9 that he will tell them in advance what he plans to do. He said, see how the former predictions come true? And now new things do I declare. Before they sprout, I tell you about them. So that's our first servant song. So now what we want to do is look at our next one. And we find it in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 6. And it further refines the servant's mission. We'll see here that this servant is, no, is to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. God also says of this servant, as we'll see, I will give, to, give you for a light to the nations that you may be my salvation, my Yeshua, to the end of the earth. And that passage reads, Coastlands, listen to me. You peoples far away. Adonai called me from the womb. Before I was born, he had spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword while hiding me in the shadow of his hand. He has made me like a sharpened arrow while concealing me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, through whom I will show my glory. And you'll notice that he says, I'm Israel. We'll talk about that a little more next week. But um, th there's some important things in that one, that one there. But I said, I have told in vain, spent my strength for nothing, futility, yet my cause is without an eye. My reward is with my God. So now Adonai says, he formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Yaakov back to him, to have Israel gathered to him so that I will be honored in the sight of Adonai, my God having become my strength. He has said, it is not enough that you are merely my servant to raise up the tribes of Yaakov and to restore the offspring of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so my salvation can spread to the ends of the earth. Pretty powerful. Remember, God's people have been defeated and their temple destroyed, as I mentioned a few moments ago. They've been taken and changed to Babylon. They are alienated from their land and from their God. This exile produces both a crisis of identity and a crisis of faith. Are they still God's people? And how can they worship in this foreign land? It's into this crisis that Isaiah speaks a word of hope. God will send a servant who will do justice. And in fact, much of Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 addresses the return of the people to their homeland and the promise of a restored temple and nation. But God has something even bigger in mind, not just returning his people from exile. He will raise up a servant whose role is one of salvation. This servant will bring the people of Israel back to God. 
and also will be a light to the Gentile nations so that his salvation will spread to the ends of the earth. We also see here that Adonai called the servant from the womb. And even before his birth, the father had spoken his name. Now, for those who claim that the servant is the nation of Israel, I want to ask you this. This was not, I'll tell you this actually. This was not true of the nation of Israel because the name Israel was given through Jacob in the third generation of Abraham's seed not before the birth of the nation's seed. Okay, that's important. We'll talk about that in a few more minutes. But Adonai did send the angel Gabriel to give the name Yeshua to the Messiah before he was born. So, and you see that in Luke 1.31. In verses 1 through 6 of the passage I just read, the servant speaks and states the purpose of his coming. He also prophesies that he will be rejected, and that he will reach the Gentiles. In verse 2, the words of the servant said he would speak and he would judge men and angels on the last day. He will be our judge. And that is confirmed in John 12, 48. If you want to look that one up when you have time. And the servant is also called while he is still in the womb. He was hidden and he was invisible. And also in verse 2, it told us that the Lord hides the servant in the shadow of his hand and in his quiver. Today, we can look back and see that God did exactly that with Yeshua. He hid him from the wrath of Herod by taking him into Egypt. Then he hid him from all those who would have killed him when he walked the earth, waiting until the appointed time when he, God the Father, would allow this servant to be crucified. In verse 3, we see that this servant identifies himself as Israel and that he was the chosen instrument through whom God would be glorified. And he said unto me, Thou art my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now in this passage, the Lord God himself named the future Messiah Israel. So I want to talk a little bit about what Israel means. I said a moment ago that it would be next week. My apologies. I've got two lessons on similar things. And sexually, this morning, we're going to talk about this. So let's do it now. Israel has several definitions in the Bible, depending on the context. And I want to talk about those, because I want you to see that this is important. The first one, it was the name given by the angel to Jacob when they wrestled until daybreak in Genesis chapter 32. Israel also refers to the descendants of Jacob, not just to Jacob himself, but also to his descendants and through his 12 sons. Have another definition, Ephraim, who was Jacob's grandson. That term Israel came to refer to Ephraim and the 10 12s who seceded from the house of David. And they claimed the name Israel for themselves. You can find that in Hosea 8, verse 14. Another definition, it was the name that was applied to the kingdom of Judah after the captivity and loss of the, 12 tri or the 10 tribes that comprised the northern kingdom. That northern kingdom often being referred to as Ephraim. And that happened when Samaria fell in 722 BC. In other words, you had your northern kingdom, Ephraim, or Israel, and you had your southern kingdom, Judah. Well, when Ephraim was defeated and fell, Judah claimed that name Israel for itself. That's what this is saying. 
Another definition, and if you're counting, this is our fifth. It was the covenant name of the righteous remnant as distinguished from the hypocritical, rebellious majority who made up the principal mass of those deported into captivity into Babylon. The sixth definition we'll look at is during the time of Yeshua's ministry. The name Israel was used to refer to a tiny handful of Jewish people who were called Israelites indeed by Yeshua himself. You can find that in John chapter 1, verse 47. That distinguished between them and the people who, at the same time that they plotted Yeshua's death, were calling themselves Israelites and sons of Abraham. You can find that in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 50. And the last one I want to talk about is how Israel is used here in this passage in Isaiah 49.3. This refers exclusively to the Messiah. So when Adonai says he named the servant Israel, he's stating that Israel is Adonai's title for Messiah himself. Then in verse 4, we learn that the servant's earthly work would appear to fail. Although verses 5 and 6 go on to tell us that his future success would be glorious because he would gather in the righteous remnant of the physical nation of the Jewish people and he would also become a light to the nations, to those heathen people, thus bringing salvation to the entire world. Because according to Adonai, simply bringing Jacob back to the Lord or Israel back to the Lord and restoring Israel was not enough. Now let's look at the third servant song. This is in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. This one doesn't specifically use that word servant, but nonetheless it does describe the servant's work and his strong faith. Adonai Elohim has given me the ability to speak as a man well taught, so that I, with my words, know how to sustain the weary. Each morning he, he awakens my ear to hear like those who are taught, Adonai Elohim has opened my ear, and I neither rebelled nor turned away. I offered my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting, for Adonai Elohim will help. This is why no insult can wound me. This is why I have set my face like flint, knowing I will not be put to shame. My vindicator is close by. Let whoever dares to accuse me appear with me in court. Let whoever has a case against me step forward. Look, if Adonai Elohim helps me, who will dare to condemn me? Here, they are all falling apart like old moth-eaten clothes. This song actually has two sections, verses 4 and 5, and then there's verses 7 through 9, both of which hinge on the servant suffering at the hands of his enemies in verse 6. That verse graphically depicts the abuse that his enemies would inflict upon him. Verse 4 of that passage tells us that God had given the servant a tongue to teach and encourage the people. Then in verse 5, it tells us that God also gave him an ear to hear God and to hear the people. Verse 6 describes the servant's suffering at the hands of his enemy, as we just saw. Within the context of exile, a prophet's advocacy on behalf of those who are suffering can lead to resistance from the powerful and sometimes even from those who suffer. Does that make sense?
If you're advocating on behalf of people who are suffering, both the people who are suffering, think about Moses as he tried to lead the people out. What happened? They had to create bricks without straw, go find their own straw, and still produce as much. They turned on Moses, who was advocating on behalf of them, so there's just one example. The people you're advocating against can come against you as well as the people you're advocating for can turn against you, and that's what we see here in this passage. The servant in this passage gives his back to those who strike him instead of retaliating. And it's important to point out that the servant does not receive this suffering passively. Instead, he actively chooses to accept the conflict that arises as a result of his proclamation. In other words, he goes willingly. It's that servant that Eved we talked about earlier. Totally sold out whatever his master wants, he willingly does. Verses 7 through 9 reveal that Adonai will help him so that the servant sets his face like flint, fully confident that he will triumph over his adversaries. We read here that Adonai will vindicate the honor of the servant, and the language used here evokes a legal hearing, especially through the use of the Hebrew word azar, which means help, in both verses 7 and 9. Thus, the Lord, who is the source of the servant's calling in verses 4 and 5, is also the agent of the servant's vindication. He calls him and he vindicates him. Because of God's help, the servant will not be put to shame, as it tells us in verse 7, and his enemies will not be able to contend, in verse 8, against him or declare him guilty, verse 9. In Adonai's court of opinion, the servant is righteous, and God's help is the source of his confidence and hope in the midst of suffering. As I mentioned earlier, we do believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. But what did Yeshua believe about himself, and what did his disciples believe about him? Think that's kind of important? Actually, we see numerous places throughout the Hadashah where both Yeshua and his servants describe him as a servant. Okay? Example, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Yeshua tells his disciples that, quote, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He was that Eved. Matthew 23, 11, where he told them that the greatest among you must be your servant. Mark 9, 35, he set the 12 apostles down and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must make himself last of all and servant of all. Now, what about the apostles? Peter, in his Acts 3 sermon, proclaims in verse 13 that the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Yeshua. And then in verse 26, in that same chapter, states, So it is to you first that God has sent his servant, whom he has raised up, so that he might bless you by turning each one of you from your evil ways. Next chapter, Acts 4, verses 27 through 30. We see where Yeshua was referred to in a prayer to the Father as, quote, your holy servant Yeshua. So without question, both Yeshua and his disciples did see him as being a servant, an Eved. Now, what I want to do with the time we have remaining is take a quick look at the last servant song. We're going to read chapter 53. And this is in preparation for next week's class, because next week we're really going to zero in on 53, because that is really 
that's the one that has the most punch. These others have set the stage for us. The 53 is very, very telling. And what's really interesting about 53, I'll state this, is even though, as I said earlier, the Jewish people reject any inference that it refers to the Messiah, we'll see next week that historically the rabbis overwhelmingly connected this passage to the Messiah. So let's take a look and read it. And before we get into actually reading it, I want to say something. There's a video on YouTube that you may want to take a look at. It's called The Forbidden Chapter. It's by a group called uh, Ministry, Tree of Life Ministries Israel. It's a short video. It's only like four or five minutes long. I would encourage you this week to find some time to go out to YouTube. Take a look at it because that provides the Jewish historical perspective of Isaiah 53 as well as how it morphed from being about the, about the Messiah to being about the nation of Israel. So it's very interesting. I'll give you the short story real quick, and then we'll talk more about it at length next week. For approximately 1,700 years after the writing of the book of Isaiah, the rabbis taught that Isaiah 53 was indeed about the Messiah. But it morphed from being about the Messiah to being about Israel in the view of the Jewish people for a very interesting reason. Messianic Rabbi Rachmiel Friedland, who was a Holocaust survivor from a deeply Orthodox family, became a believer in Yeshua, and he can help us unravel this. He's written an article. It's actually on the Jews for Jesus website, if you want to look it up. It's called The Rabbi's Dilemma, a look at Isaiah 53. And in that article, he explains how Rashi and some of the later rabbis began to interpret Isaiah 53 as referring to Israel, even though they knew that previous interpretations overwhelmingly connected it directly to the Messiah. Rabbi Friedland provides us with a number of other interesting observations in that article. For example, first, the Aramaic translation of Isaiah 53, which is ascribed to Rabbi Jonathan ben Uziel, a disciple of Hillel, who lived early in the 2nd century A.D., begins with the simple and worthy words. Behold, my Messiah shall prosper. He shall be high and increase and be exceedingly strong. As the house of Israel looked to him through many days because their countenance was darkened among the peoples and their complexion beyond the sons of men. And that's in Targum, Jonathan on Isaiah 53. Rabbi Friedland then points out that the Babylonian Talmud also interprets Isaiah 53 as referring to the Messiah. And that quote, the Messiah, what is his name? The rabbis say, the leprous one. Those of the house of rabbis say, the sick one. As it is said, surely he has borne our sicknesses. Okay, end quote. Friedland quotes Rabbi Moshe al Sheikh. I guess is how you pronounce it. Okay. He's a rabbi of Safed in the late 16th century to provide further evidence of his assertion. And quote, I may remark then that our rabbis with one voice accept and affirm the opinion that the prophet is speaking of the king Messiah. So let that sink in. And note that nowhere in any of those ancient interpretations is there any mention of Isaiah 53 referring to the nation of Israel. The last interesting observation from Rabbi Friedland's article that I want to mention is that in the 9th century A.D., 
the Jewish religious poet Eliezer HaKalir paraphrased Isaiah 53 into a poem, get this, that's recited in traditional synagogues during the traditional Yom Kippur prayers. To quote from that prayer, Messiah, our righteousness hath turned from us. We are in terror and there is none to justify us. Our iniquities and the yoke of our transgressions he did bear, for he was wounded for our transgressions. He carries our sins upon his shoulders, that we may find forgiveness for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. O eternal one, the time has come to make a new creation. From the vault of heaven bring him up. Out of Seir draw him forth, that he may make his voice heard to us in Lebanon. A second time by the hand of Yanan, and just as a side note, one of Messiah's names will be Yanan, according to rabbinic interpretation of Psalm 72, 19. Interesting. Okay. The First Fruits of Zion website paints a very vivid picture of the recitation of this poem for us, and I want to read it verbatim from FFOZ's site. It says, during the prayer called the Kedusha, in which we raise our voices in concert with the angelic multitudes who constantly surround God's throne crying, holy, holy, holy. We sanctify God's name on earth just as it is sanctified by the angels in heaven. Here, at the Kedusha, is the moment that catches you by surprise. The prayer leader suddenly begins to describe how the Messiah, through his intense suffering, piercing, and wounds, Procure us forgiveness for our sins. The rabbi does not stir or act alarmed. The congregation continues in fervent prayer as if nothing unusual has happened. That is because this is a portion of a common Yom Kippur prayer called Oz Melifnei Bereshit that has been used in synagogue for centuries. That prayer that I just mentioned can be found in volume two of the famous Magzor Kol Bo. And FFOZ points out that the existence and use of this prayer alone is not proof that Yeshua is the Messiah and that the rabbis have known it all along. But instead it shows us that the concept of Messiah's suffering is intrinsic to Jewish thought. And that's important. Anti-missionaries actually set a stumbling block before the blind, to use a cliché, when they deny the idea that Judaism teaches that the Messiah suffers for our sin. When you study history, it's clear that the ancient rabbis absolutely believed Isaiah 53 was about the coming Messiah. So what happened? Simply put, as I just explained, Rashi changed the dialogue. He suggested that it referred to Isaiah 53 now. Before we judge him too harshly, we need to understand the times in which he lived. At that time, there was a degenerate, medieval distortion of Christianity that was being practiced that resulted in the Jewish people being persecuted for their lack of faith in Yeshua as the Messiah. And for that reason, he wanted to preserve his people, the Jewish people, and keep them from accepting Yeshua and the teachings of Christianity. So, well-intentioned, he was looking out for the welfare of his people to some extent, but at the same time, other prominent Jewish rabbis and leaders realized the inconsistencies of his interpretation, and they pointed out three primary objections. The first was the consensus of ancient opinion 
which was that Isaiah 53 was talking about the Messiah, not Israel. And we've already discussed about that this morning, and we'll talk about that more next week. The text, when you read it, it's in the singular. It talks about he, not they, or it. Okay? The third. This is verse 8 of Isaiah 53 itself, which speaks for itself. It says, after forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away, and none of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people who deserve the punishment themselves. Think about this. The nation of Israel has never been cut out of the land of the living because the Jewish people have continued to survive despite centuries of persecution and exile. There have always been a remnant. Even during those centuries of exile, there was a remnant of Jewish people living in the land of Israel. So they've never been cut out of life period. They've never been completely cut out of the land. To the contrary, God has promised that the nation of Israel will exist forever. So when we say that Isaiah 53 refers to the Messiah, it's important that we understand that we are not talking simply about a Christian interpretation. The Jewish sages of ancient times also interpreted Isaiah 53 to be about the Messiah. We have numerous documented sources proving just that. We've talked about a few of them today. And in fact, the well-known term Messiah ben Yosef, Messiah ben of Joseph, comes from Isaiah 53. And another one I want to talk about, and we're actually not going to have time to read Isaiah 53 today, so I'm going to give you some homework. Because we're going to talk about it at length and look at all the verses next week. Read that this week and be prepared for next week. Because I want to cover the other stuff in here. And we've got, if we skip reading that, we've got time to cover the rest of it. We also have not to be overlooked the witness of biblical books such as Zechariah and Daniel that tell us that the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the Second Temple. We all know that occurred in 70 AD. So that's history. And that's an important fact. When we look at chapter 9 of Daniel, we see that, and I'll, if you want to go back and read that, that would be good as well. But I want to give you something here that's kind of complex, and I hope I can break it down simply for you. When we look at chapter 9 of Daniel, we see that as Daniel prayed, the angel Gabriel arrived, and he gave him information about the coming of the Messiah. In verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, he tells Daniel, Seventy-sevens are decreed upon thy people and upon thy holy city. The correct translation of this passage is 77s of years, not 70 weeks as many Bibles translate it. Or, in other words, it's 70 times 7. That gives us a total of 490 years. Gabriel told Daniel that the 77s would begin when a decree was issued to rebuild Jerusalem. Scholars debate when that countdown actually began but most agree that there are two very strong candidates for that decree. The first one is the decree that was issued by Cyrus between 538 and 536 BC to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. The second is the decree that was issued by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in the year 444 BC to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And we don't know for certain which one it is, but in either case, the countdown had to begin no later than the year 444. 
and I know this is kind of small, but I did want to get it on one slide, so I hope you can see it. There are actually three different sets of sevens during these 70 sevens. The first set is a set of seven sevens for a total of 49 years. That period is when Jerusalem would be rebuilt after the Babylonian exile. So for 49 years, they're rebuilding Jerusalem in the temple. Then we have a block of 62 sevens. That gives us a total of 434 years in the second set. That's immediately followed by that first set. That brings us up to 434 plus 49 gives us a total of 483 years. That's 69 of those sevens, okay? And those, as I said, run consecutively, no break. The book of Daniel then lets us know that the 69 sevens ends when the Messiah comes. Daniel 9.25 tells us this, Know therefore and discern that seven weeks of years will elapse between the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Yerushalayim until an appointed prince comes, who is the Messiah. In other words, once that decree was issued, the clock would begin counting towards Messiah's arrival here on earth. If he had not arrived by the end of that 69th seven, we have no other option than to view Daniel as a false prophet. Okay. But if Daniel was not a false prophet, then we have no other choice than to accept that the Messiah had to arrive by the end of those 69 years. That last seven-year period, as we see in the scripture, was not to immediately follow that second set, but there'd be a gap. We see in the last part of verse 25 of chapter 9 and then in verse 26 that it, Jerusalem, will remain built for 62 weeks of years, which is that second block we just talked about, with open spaces and moats, but these will be troubled times. Then, after the 62 weeks, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing. So we see here that three things would occur at the conclusion of the first two sets of sevens. First, the Messiah would be cut off and have nothing. The Hebrew word that is translated as cut off here is used in the Mosaic Law, and it simply means to be killed. And we'll talk more about that next week when we discuss Isaiah 53, but essentially we're being told that he would be executed. Number two, we continue to verse 26, and we learn that then after the 62 weeks, which completes 69 of those 77s, Mashiach will be cut off and have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come with a flood, and desolations are decreed until the war is over. This tells us that the Messiah is cut off, executed, as we just talked about. Then the city and the temple will be destroyed. And we know from history, 70 AD, that happened. So what we have learned thus far from Daniel is that the Messiah must come and die prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, 70 AD. The third thing that we learn is at the end of verse 26, and desolations are decreed until the war is over. During the period from the end of the 69 sevens until the 70th seven, desolations and war will continue. Those wars are what set the stage for the last set of sevens after which the Messiah will continue to will come to set up the Messianic kingdom. Hmm, okay, we got a dilemma here. It's extremely interesting and telling because we learned from Daniel that Messiah would be killed after the 69th seven, but now we're told that after a gap, he comes. 
So we got two perplexing situations. When does the Messiah actually come? Does he come after that 69th, seven, uh, so 483 years after the decree, but before the destruction of the temple? Or does he come after the 70, 70th set of years to set up that millennial kingdom? Which is it? I mean, if a person's dead, how can they come back, okay? And while it may not appear that there is, while it may appear that there is a contradiction here, there's a simple answer. What if there are two separate comings of this Messiah? The first being to offer himself as a substitutionary offering in our place, and the second to establish the Messianic kingdom. Remember those two descriptions of the Messiah we talked about earlier. That still leaves us with the second question. Okay, if he comes twice, fine. Okay, that explains the two comings. But what about, what about the fact that he's dead? How's the dead person come back? Okay. Because we saw he would be killed after his first coming. But obviously the only way someone can, can come back is if they're resurrected. We see that with Yeshua. Okay? So moving beyond Daniel, we have other prophetic passages, as we mentioned at the beginning of this class. But Isaiah 53 is the most telling, and we're gonna, I've asked you to read that. For next week, I want you to be prepared, and we're going to dig into it. We're going to look at it verse by verse, and we're going to talk about why it is so important why it is so controversial. Now, one, a couple other things I want to mention. I, I know we're going to a couple of minutes late because we started a little late, um, but I do want to get this in. Isaiah 53, as I said earlier, we read it, we recognize it as being about Yeshua, but the Jewish people do not when they think it's part of their Tanakh. A lot of that has to do with the fact that we've so completely disguised Yeshua to his own people that they don't recognize him. Just as Joseph, who we recently read about in our weekly readings, who had taken on the identity of an Egyptian, was unrecognizable to his own family until he revealed himself to them. Okay? Isaiah 53 is so powerful that, as we talked about, Rashi and his successors had to work very hard to convince the Jewish people that it refers to Israel and not the Messiah, even though sages prior to him unequivocally agreed that it was referring to the Messiah. I want to share a passage. Uh, it's a testimony from a Jewish woman named Gary Ungarian who accepted Yeshua as her Messiah in 1983 and show you why this passage is so powerful. Quote, to say that I was shocked when I first read Isaiah 53 would be a gross understatement. I remember reading the words over and over. I wondered why I had never heard this in my synagogue. It was a clear picture of our Redeemer, Redeemer, Yeshua, and why he went to that cross to suffer and die. The 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi admitted that long ago, the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in synagogues, but after the chapter caused, quote, arguments and great confusion, end quote, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing would be to just take that prophecy out of the half Torah readings in synagogues. That's why today, when we read Isaiah 52, we stop in the middle of the chapter, and the week after, we jump straight to Isaiah 54. Okay, end quote from her. Note how she pointed out that the reading stops in the middle of chapter 52. We're going to start in 52 next week and then go into 53, and there's a reason. We'll talk about that next week. Okay. There's also an article Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has online that says what rabbis have said about Isaiah 53 that has a lot of inf interesting information. We don't have time, unfortunately, to go through it. 
what I might do is for those of you who are on Realm is copy the link to that article and send it out on Realm because I'd really like you to see it because it's very interesting. But the bottom line is it states that they all speak as in one voice as I read earlier that the earlier sages did that this passage refers to the Messiah. And another one you may want to read, I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff, but it's important, is Acts chapter 8, verses 30 through 35. Look at what happened with Philip and the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, and see where he accepted Yeshua. He, one passage was used, and it was Isaiah 53. That's how powerful Isaiah 53 is. That's why the Jewish leaders do not want the people reading Isaiah 53 because, as I said, if you go to the common person on the street in Israel, you give them that passage and they don't know it's coming from their Tanakh, they will tell you it's about Jesus. It happens over and over again. But when they think it's in their Tanakh, they're going to put up a wall and say, no, it's about Israel. So that's how powerful it is. So I look forward to sharing with you next week, and let's go ahead and close out. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. And Father, I just, I just pray, Father, for those whose eyes need to be opened. Father, I pray that these words will touch their heart, that they will see that the suffering servant is the Messiah, and that that Messiah is Yeshua, that you sent him here to suffer on our behalf, to take our sins away so that we could be forgiven and could be declared righteous in your sight through his blood. Father, we thank you for what you did for the sacrifice you made. And help us to live in such a way that we can be worthy of being an offering to you. Through our, that our lives will be worthy offerings to you, Father. Not in our own selves, but through Yeshua, through him, because of what he has done for us. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.